I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Today, we're going to talk about what ADHD is, why is it not just normal, cheeky behavior, and what we think causes it and how we diagnose it. So let's jump right in. ADHD is a group of symptoms, which you can probably find online, but these symptoms revolve around three main areas or three main categories that we look at in children's behavior. The first one is hyperactivity. So children who are overactive in comparison to their age. So for example, a child who's unable to sit at a table for dinner, for example, at the age of three is absolutely fine. At the age of five is less fine. At the age of 10, Hmm, you start to question, are they able to regulate their activity levels? A child who's struggling to sit in class at the age of two is very different to one that is struggling to sit in year one, you know, at the age of five, and is very different from that case in the age of 10. So when we look at hyperactivity, we're looking at difficulty in regulating activity rather than just hyper all the time. So these children tend to be kind of motorized. They're always on the go and then they crash. And the same goes for attention. So these children struggle to maintain their attention. Again, we compare it to what is expected out of their age group. So for example, a child is able to sit down for five minutes and then after that, they get distracted, they want to move around, they want to look at something different, they can't listen more than five minutes. That's absolutely fine at the age of four. That's absolutely fine at the age of five. That's less fine at the age of eight, less fine and less fine at the age of 17. So we think about how long a person is able to maintain their attention. We also think about what that attention looks like. So is the person able to maintain focus on one item or one task to complete it if they want to? Or are they more prone to multitasking? They do better if they're kind of, if they've got like more than one window open in their mind at a time. And are they able to complete things if they really want to? So we look at maintained attention and the type of attention as well. And we look at the distractibility, how much the person is distractible and what might grab their attention from the task at hand. So for example, I'm talking to you now and there's stuff going on in the street next to me and I'm able to keep an ear out to what's going on on the street. So if you know, something major happens on the street, then I can move my focus from you to that. But as long as it's in the background, I'm aware of it. 
I can zone it out. I don't have to be distractible or distracted by it. Not in any way suggesting that my attention is perfect, but this is an example of me being able, of a person being able to zone out what they want to zone out without having to shift their focus or um, divide their focus in an, in an unhelpful way. And the last thing that we think about is impulsivity. How able is the person to make decisions and give themselves time before they make a particular decision? So let me give you an example to that according to the age group. So for example, a child who's at the age of three who would jump into a busy street is fine. A child who's less aware or less able to regulate that decision-making at the age of four is concerning. At the age of five is even more concerning. And that's a very loud example. Let's think about um, other decisions. For example, children who make decisions around criminal behavior, um, they'll get into fights. They'll grab something that they didn't really mean to do. I've had children get into really big trouble at school or really big trouble with the law. And when you think with them about it, they'd say, you know, if, if I had two more minutes to think about this decision, I would never have made it. So these are the three categories that we think about. And a lot of people think that we look for hyper um, activity all the time. We look for inattention all the time. We look for impulsivity all the time. But the reality is we look for dysregulation. So there is a limited ability for these children to regulate these aspects. So there are times where children can be like I said, crash after being hyperactive all day. There are times where kids can hyperfocus. So for example, a lot of people will say, you know, they're very hyperactive. They're moving about all the time. They cannot focus on a sentence. I'll tell them to please grab their phone from, from their room and put their shoes on and they'll just go and do a third thing and just, you know, put their makeup on instead. And people will tell me, that on the other side, these kids will be able to focus for extended periods of time on their phone or on a game or on something that they like. And the reality is that it seems, it used to be that we thought that it's just a case of inattention, but the more time passes and the more we learn about ADHD, it looks like Kids have a difficulty in being in control of their attention, being able to manage it in a way that they want to. And the same goes for impulsivity. So kids who have ADHD might not be impulsive at all, but might be or might be a little bit impulsive or might be massively impulsive that it impacts their life in a really massive way. The other symptoms that people might not talk about as often, but are really important, are emotional dysregulation or emotional or difficulty in controlling one's emotion. So children with ADHD will always talk about their emotions being all over the place. And parents will see this in the form of tantrums, in the form of behavioral difficulties. You know, their child is being oppositional, the child is being moody or angry. And it looks like because it's a developmental difficulty. So children stop at a certain uh, age in their development 
in terms of their attention and their activity regulation, their emotional regulation and their impulse regulation in comparison to them developing normally in terms of walking, talking, um, in terms of their intelligence. So it looks like kids get a bit stuck in how they can manage their emotions. So again, it's absolutely okay to see that emotional up and down and the person who's in a child who's at the age of, you know, again, three or four, but in a child who's at the age of six, having massive tantrums in the middle of a shop is, is a little bit concerning. The same goes for a child who's at the age of 14, who's still having major meltdowns or, you know, punching holes in walls, then that's concerning. And you think about, are these children able to regulate. So if you get upset by something, even if it's small, are you able to bring yourself down? Are you able to do something? So for example, a child who's neurotypical, ideally in an ideal situation, a child at the age of, let's say 13, who gets really upset by something is able to put on some music and chill. A child who has ADHD and they get upset with something, they might be um, more prone to just spiraling out of control, to doing something, you know, really um, regretful, especially when you mix that emotional up and down with a degree of impulsivity. So a degree of them making decisions without really thinking about the consequences. And the concern about ADHD is often the impact is huge. So ADHD comes in all shapes and forms. So it's sometimes kids will have more problems with attention. Some kids will have more problems with activity levels. Some kids will be more impulsive and some kids will have all three or two of them. And to, to be able to brand this as ADHD rather than just a behavioral difficulty or something that is to do with their mood or their temperament, how they're built, we have to look at, is this is this new? So ADHD does not just pop out of, of the blue. It has to start from an early part of your life. So like I said, it looks like ADHD is a halt in development at a certain time when it comes to these four areas, right? So it seems that kids will develop normally up to an age and then their speech, their language, their intelligence will develop at a higher pace than their ability to develop their attention, to develop their activity regulation and develop their impulse control and develop their emotional regulation. So this normally we see people telling us, you know, some people will tell you, um, you know, my child from the very beginning, they're motorized. From the very beginning, they're just all over the place. They never slept properly. They never sat still. I had to, I had difficult time putting them to sleep as a ba as babies. And some children will say everything was fine. And then at the age of two, I started to see a lot of hyperactivity that was not settling. The terrible twos never stopped. They were all over the place. They were really clumsy getting into accidents. Um, they'll tell you that that really continued. And there were difficulties at every stage of education. That's the second thing is that children who have ADHD do not have an off button. So you, you might see that there's trying. Some children will try to control themselves at school and then will come home and that will complete and they'll completely explode. And some children will really struggle to put a lid on it at school and they will have difficulties in every area of their life. So that's the 
other aspect is we check what is going on at school, what is going on in your, you know, in whatever class you go to outside of school. How do these children behave and act in settings outside of home? So if you go to visit people, if you go uh, on holiday, if you go um, and stay at somebody's house, how do they present on play dates? You know, how do they present in different settings? Because ADHD will present across the board in every place they go to. And we'll see that it's persistent from a very early age in development and up to the point of presentation. And it used to be that we don't diagnose ADHD at an early age. And that's still the case in some children, but we do break that law. So sometimes we do make that diagnosis under the age of six or under the age of five in certain situations. But that's not the norm. Normally, we let the child develop a little bit and see if they catch on because children, like, you know, some children will speak later than others. Some children will develop in these areas a little bit later than others. So we let them go at their pace. And the other thing to think about ADHD is it runs in families. So normally it's difficult for families to detect these difficulties and what they'll often detect is the problems coming out of it. So there's a high possibility that one or both parents have ADHD. And when you view the world in that sense, at that very high pace with that difficulty in attention, then it's difficult for you to detect if your child is like that. And what you start to detect is when um, you started to, to detect that there's something off when there's problems, when the school starts complaining, when their um, performance starts to suffer, when they start to get in trouble um, at school or with the law. And that's why sometimes we see very late presentations and people will try everything before they come for an ADHD assessment. I think that's less so now because people are more aware of ADHD. So is this a neurodiversity or is it a disorder? The reality is that's a controversial area because we do treat it and we know that there is a treatment for it. But on the other side, we don't always treat it. So for children who have a lesser degree of ADHD, where the impact is not as high, they're not struggling as much. Sometimes we treatment in terms of medication is optional. We do suggest a lot of lifestyle changes though, because and I'm going to speak in a minute about why that is, why we tend to suggest some kind of treatment at any point doesn't have to always be medication, but we do treat it. But on the other side, and that's what I tell my patients, if we lived in a different world, if this was, you know, prehistoric times and, or, you know, or medieval times and you didn't need to sit down for extended periods of time to engage in society. You didn't need to, um, and, and at this day and age, we're sitting and required to maintain attention for the longest time, maybe the longest ever. Um, kids are required to sit down at certain, you know, and listen to a lesson being delivered for 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, sometimes more. That's a lot. That's, uh, that's a lot. And if this were a different world, then maybe these differences um, wouldn't be as difficult or wouldn't affect their lives as much. But there are children who are 
definitely needing treatment. Children who this difficulty in paying attention and sitting down and making decisions is really impactful. So it's causing them to disengage from parenting. You know, it's difficult. Receiving parenting, forming a healthy relationship with your parents requires a degree of attention, of uh, sitting down, of listening, of um, kind of careful decision making. Um, and sometimes the struggle of ADHD is that children struggle to receive parenting properly and it damages the relationship with the parents. So if you're spending all of your time telling your child to not do this, sit down, stop it, don't don't jump off the sofa, don't make that decision that's going to hurt you, then there is very little time to forming a proper relationship with your child and trying to give them uh, care and support and experience, hand, you know, handing them down experience. So in these cases, we definitely advise people to seek out medication treatment. And now why do we, why do we advise treatment? We advise treatment because if you have ADHD, you're more likely to encounter other mental health difficulties. So People who have ADHD are more likely to develop mental illness like depression or anxiety, and they're more likely to develop substance misuse. They're more likely to develop a lot of other difficulties. They're more likely to get in trouble in a lot of parts of their life. So lose jobs often or get in trouble with the law or get in trouble with driving tickets. So we advise that there is a form of treatment. So even if you're on the mild end of things, then you need to probably think about behavioral aspects. So changing your lifestyle to meet um, your needs and how your brain works. And I'm going to talk to you about the treatment of ADHD in detail in a later episode, but that's one form of treatment, which is the behavior and lifestyle changes. And for children, sometimes part of the treatment, actually all the time, part of the treatment is education for teachers and school and little tricks like asking school to issue a pass where the child can have a 10 minute um, sit down time and then have a break to walk around or a break to do something and sometimes that's worked into their tasks and duty in the class so every 10 minutes you know go do this errand or do that thing or pass this notebook to that teacher and you can send them on errands every 10 minutes to allow them to get that out of their system, to allow them to um, just regulate their attention a little bit. And the same goes for emotional regulation. So kind of detecting the early signs and teaching children how to detect the early signs of having a tantrum or becoming overwhelmed. So school, behavioral stuff, lifestyle changes, and in the end, medication. Now, for us to talk about medication next time, let's talk about why ADHD happens. So in short, we don't know. We, we really don't know. We have a lot of theories. There's a lot of research about it. We do have a clue about which parts of the brain are affected with ADHD, but there are a lot of factors that play into why people develop ADHD. And we can't really say that, oh, we know exactly what's going on here and this is why we give this medication. The reality is we know that medication, certain medications work for ADHD and we have theories about why, but we can't really um, swear by it. We can't really know why that works. It looks like that 
a lot of factors go into the development of ADHD. So the first factor is genetic, how you're built, how your body reacts to the environment. And we can say that there's a single gene, so there are multiple genes responsible, but there's a high um heritability. So if you have ADHD, there's a high likelihood that your child will. If one of your children is diagnosed, then it's very high likelihood that another child will have it. But also we don't know if this heritability is only because of genetic aspects. So it also looks like that there is a part of this that has to do with upbringing, how you behave and how you model and how you help your child develop their attention and activity regulation and decision-making and emotional regulation. So, for example, um, a person, an adult who has ADHD untreated will struggle with all of these things. And then for a very large portion of your child's life, for the first five years at least, and probably after that, you need a lot of co-regulation. You need to actually actively help your child regulate their attention, sit down, manage their emotions, identify them, cope with them. And if you're struggling with that, it's going to be really hard for you to actually co-regulate with your child. And it's going to affect how you parent them, what you focus on when you parent them. Like I said, what you model is really important. So a child who's watching, a parent who's, you know, um, distractible and does a lot of stuff at a time is kind of all over the shop in their own way, will probably copy this behavior and will probably be less likely to do something different. So there's a part of this that's to do with upbringing. There's also a lot of evidence and, you know, clinical experience around the effect of trauma. So children who have encountered trauma in early life tend to develop a lot of difficulty in their attention and activity regulation, their impulse regulation. So, and it looks like, again, it's to do with interference with that early a process of developing these key aspects of, of their ability to regulate. And I get that question a lot um, in clinic. Is it trauma or is it ADHD? And the reality is that ADHD is low-hanging fruit. So, and it doesn't matter how you got it. If you got it, you got it. And what I mean by low-hanging fruit is it's treatment in terms of medication is very easy. So if you have it, medication will probably help you. But trauma has a much longer process and a lot of people have both. So people who are affected by trauma from a very early part of their lives might develop difficulties in sitting down. It has to do with their um, regulation difficulty. It has to do with their um, something similar to PTSD, the presence of the trauma, the presence of the difficult memories, the lack of uh, co-regulation at an early age, the lack of that parental support and care in that early age. And we tend to see a lot of overlap between symptoms of trauma. And I'm going to talk about trauma um, a little bit more, but there, and if you want to look at that episode about trauma, I think that would be helpful at this point. But in clinic, what we tend to do is if a person meets the criteria for ADHD, even if the cause was something different, it doesn't matter. And I use this analogy a lot. 
ADHD is like if you see a child with a limp, right? It doesn't matter how they got it. You're probably going to need to treat the limp. But some children will have a limp because they have something genetic. They, they, they have difficulties in developing their muscles and it's completely genetic. It's out of, you know, um, out of complete pure physical causes. And some children will have um, a history of neglect. So nobody really taught them to walk properly and nobody corrected the limp and they just learned to walk like this they walked very late and they walked with a limp and nobody cared and nobody interfered and some people some children will copy the parents so if their parent has a limp they probably will just think that this is how people walk and if the parent didn't realize they had a limp they wouldn't correct them and some kids will have a history of trauma where every time they try to learn to walk somebody hit them on their knee somebody just put them down and that interfered with their normal development so the end result is they have a limp and you have to treat the limp it doesn't matter because the treatment of the cause of each of these is going to be different. And trauma is one that needs long-term treatment and needs a degree of attention and regulation for kids to engage in the, in the treatment. So sometimes we treat ADHD first and then we treat trauma if we, if we still need to, because a lot of kids will just get the ADHD treatment and you'll see massive improvement in how they are generally. And in terms of what in the brain is broken, again, we don't know. It looks like there are bits that are biological. The bits that have to do with control are affected. And there are bits that are chemical. It looks like a few chemicals are affected in the brain. And the reason why I say we don't know is that we treat ADHD with stimulants, which is a wonder and a miracle. And our theory is that it looks like stimulants kind of jog the system into working a little bit better, supplements the system into working a little bit better. At the end of the day, and I see a lot of parents struggle with this because people feel a degree of responsibility. Do Am I responsible? If this child has ADHD, it means that something is wrong with me. At the end of the day, if you're asking for help, you're asking for help. It doesn't matter how, um, it doesn't matter, you know, and you're asking for help and that in itself is a sign of good parenting. So there is no, um, it's, it's easy for me to say this, but it is hard to be on that end of it, to have your child diagnosed with something that will probably require treatment for a long period of time. But what I tell my families is this, you are there to help them navigate the difficulties and you wouldn't feel as guilty if your child had you know god forbid diabetes or they had a heart problem it wouldn't matter so if you put that weight on yourself as a parent of feeling guilty it doesn't help them and it definitely does not help you and there's nothing that i can say that will make you feel less responsible you'll always feel responsible as a parent even if that's not true and even if you had nothing to do with causing it you'll always feel a degree of responsibility and guilt. But what I'm here to tell you is let yourself off the hook and maybe teach, use that as a teachable moment to teach your child to let themselves off the hook. Because quite practically, 
depending on your story, you might have made a mistake in parenting. We all do. I mean, there's nobody who's completely perfect. There is no, again, I mean, there is no bubblegum parent who's perfect at everything. And you might have not, you might have had nothing to do with it. If you have an adopted child, you have not even, not even your genes are responsible here. So it doesn't matter. You're here, you're asking for help. That's all that matters. The last thing before I go is ADHD in girls. There's a lot of chatter around how girls present with ADHD. And the truth is, yes, they look different because they are different. Girls are different from boys and they develop a little bit differently. The expectations socially of them are different. How they're built might be different. But at the end of the day, they all... um meet the same symptoms, we look for the same stuff. If your little girl is more fidgety than active, then it'll get picked up. And we diagnose using neurodevelopmental history, which is talking to you about history, what happened, how they developed. And I always tell my families to bring in any records they have of their child's development, any photos, videos, go through all of the memories and think about when your child talked, when they walked, how they behaved, how they played. Think about what was going on as well for them at the time. School feedback and all of that stuff is really important. And the other aspect, sometimes we use a questionnaire. So a famous one that we use is called Connors. And we use that to kind of standard, use a standardized questionnaire to collect information from parents, the child, if they're old enough and school. And the last thing that some places will use is something called a QB test. And that's a computerized kind of little game that we give kids to play for like 20 minutes and it helps us map their ability to sit still and pay attention and make decisions in a controlled way and compare that to kids their own age. So at every stage of our assessment, we're comparing your child to kids who are in the same age group and in the same gender group. So it's that kind of helps to limit the bias a little bit. Sometimes we just make the diagnosis of the clinical assessment and the history that we get off you and off school. For, but for the most part, the assessment is a conversation. And for the most part, the um, diagnosis is a conversation. Sometimes we give an ADHD diagnosis in a provisional way and we think about, okay, we're going to treat this and see if it helps then we've confirmed it in a way. And sometimes we go like, you know, we will treat it and see it might not help. And in that case, we don't know if it's, if it's ADHD or not. And I think that sums ADHD a little bit. It's a bit of a whistle stop tour, but we talked about what ADHD is, what it looks like, how we assess it. And we talked a little bit about what causes it as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.